And I wanted to begin where virtually every treatment of the subject begins, and that is with our father, Abraham, who had many sons. I am one of them. I, I think you are too. So uh, which arm do we start with first? I thought it was, let's it just the praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord. Welcome to another rip-roaring episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague, Ken Hensley, and we're with the Coming Home Network. If you don't know much about our work, we are a network of people from every background you can imagine, me, Wesleyan, Arminian, Nazarene, Free Methodist, and a bunch of other things, Ken, a former Baptist pastor. Somehow we all ended up in the Catholic Church, and uh, this series of programs is uh, just one piece of us trying to explain ourselves and why it is that we would ever do a thing like that. So chnetwork.org, if you want to visit us, if you're in those shoes or have some questions of a similar ilk. Ken, how are you? I'm doing good, Matt. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well. And for those of our viewers who get all their theological talking points from Microsoft Word, when we're talking about being justified, we don't mean that your text starts on the left side of the page or the right side (laughs) of the page or aligns with both sides of the page equally. Justification in the theological realm, well, that's what we've been going through with you. So where are we today? Yeah, we're in the middle of an elongated series that we have titled A Damning System of Works Righteousness, because that's how many Protestants view the Catholic view of salvation. We're talking about the doctrine of justification in this series, Matt. And specifically, at this point, we're talking about the conception of justification that is the meaning of the word or the what happens in justification that I had when I was a Protestant seminarian and a Protestant pastor. And the conception that nearly all modern evangelicals, at least here in America, have, and that is that in justification, God is legally crediting to the account of the one who has faith the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and declaring that sinner to be just or righteous in his sight. At the moment of justification, all of our sins, this is how the view goes, all of our sins, past, present, and future sins, which is an important point to have in mind, are forgiven. We are clothed legally in the perfect righteousness of Christ, and we can know from that moment, know that we have eternal life. And when we get into this, some people might be saying, well, gosh, you all are being so nitpicky about this, or you used to be so nitpicky about this as a Baptist pastor. Why can't we just say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and just leave it at that? (laughs) Yeah, I understand. I mean, someone, you know, maybe many people listening to this and going, oh, all this precise defining of justification, what it means, isn't this sort of like the, you know, the questions that they were working on in the late scholastic period, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Isn't this just useless and kind of, yeah, just dry, dry, you know, talk? No, it's not. And, And here's why. Protestants, especially those who are from the more Reformed traditions, they believe that a correct understanding, and this is the correct understanding in their minds, of what justification is as legal imputation of Christ's righteousness is so critical that they that many of them will doubt that anyone could actually be a true Christian who doesn't hold this view of justification. Remember what uh, John MacArthur said, I read this uh, last week. 
The difference between Rome and the Reformers is not theological hair-splitting. A right understanding of justification by faith is the very foundation of the gospel, he says. You cannot go wrong at this point without corrupting every other doctrine, and that is why every different gospel is under the eternal curse of God. And John MacArthur, Pastor MacArthur is the one who referred to the Catholic teaching as a damning system of works righteousness from which we got our title. So, so yeah, you know, to, to many of us, we may think, wow, this is this crazy hair splitting, but it's not to those who come from a Reformed tradition. And that's where I came from. And those are many of the people I want to talk to in, these, um, in this series, okay? Now, moving forward, as I explained last week to kind of tie this in with our last episode, I explained last week how holding this view of precisely what happens the moment we come to faith in Christ, it seemed to me to create terrible tensions with all sorts of other things that seem to be clearly taught in the New Testament. For instance, that perseverance in faith and perseverance and obedience are a condition for salvation, or that Christians need to continue to confess their sins and receive forgiveness. And I'm, I'm talking real time. As they happen. Yeah, as know. they happen, as, a, as an ongoing part of the Christian life. My definition of justification created tension with these, because when you think of it, how can perseverance and faith and obedience be a condition for something that has been legally credited to me the moment I first believed? And, and why would I need to confess sins and receive forgiveness when I've been forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future, well, in my life, about 44 years ago now. Yeah, it's See, kind so- of like the difference between how people think of brushing their teeth versus how they think of fixing their roof. You fixed your roof. It's there. You know how have a roof over mm-hmm. your head. You're set. It's not like brushing your teeth where you're like, well, I woke up this morning and I ate some things. And so it's important for me to get the, my teeth back to their clean state. Especially when you're eating like just garlic cloves one after another for breakfast. Mm, old but, bait flavored cheese puffs in my case lately. This is okay. Enough. <laughs> you know funny. the analogy that I've used in the past about the uh, the educational analogy, okay? And I want to use it again. And take this in. I'm going to kind of develop this a little bit further than I have in the past. Okay, imagine that I tell you, Matt Swain, that from the moment you express sincere desire to have a degree from college, that you have it. From that moment, it's legally credited to your account. It's as though the the diploma is hanging on your wall. You are a graduate, period. Okay? And then imagine I come back, you know, a few minutes later and I say, oh, by the way, Matt, as a condition for receiving your diploma and becoming a graduate, you're going to need to attend classes. You're going to have to listen to lectures. You're going to have to write papers and pass tests. And you're going to have to do a, you know, a, a, you know, a thesis at the end and all that. Okay. Imagine the confusion you would feel just immediately. And when you when you expressed that to me and you said, but Ken, I, I, I thought you just said that the moment I first believed. You know I how it. I'd put it, Ken? I'd say, okay. you just gave me the cow. Why are you trying to get me to buy the milk? Yeah. And, you know? Yeah. And then I would explain it to you. I, I'd say, well, yeah, it's true. From the moment you expressed a sincere desire, it was credited to you, Matt. And I'm not really saying that going to school and passing tests is a condition for it. I'm just saying that if you really sincerely wanted it at the beginning, then this is the kind of guy you will be. You will be the guy who goes to school and passes all his tests and all that. And um, so I'm just describing the kind of person who had a sincere desire at the beginning. So yeah, that if you don't say, do feel those like things. Those, those scams from the early 90s where they're like, you can get nine CDs from Columbia House for one penny. 
Oh man, that makes me feel bad because I did those a couple like, times. Wait, this is like fifteen dollars a month. You said it was a penny. You know, I mean, you just feel cheated if that's. You're that making me feel bad because I did that probably more than once back then. This is essentially though how I was forced to read a great number of passages in the New Testament with this kind of like, okay, it's now. Oh, it's later, and it's now. Oh, there's a condition. Well, it's not really a condition. It's just an, a description. Okay, this is how I was required to read. Okay, and then I come along to picking up Alistair McGrath's remarkable work, Eustitia Dei, that is the justice of God, the history of the Christian doctrine of justification. And I learned that this conception, this very definition of justification that I had been taught and that I had been, that I held and that I'd been functioning with and teaching for many years was brand new with the reformers. And I, I want those listening to hear what McGrath says, very well-respected, Protestant theologian, professor at Oxford. This is what he said. Despite the the astonishing theological diversity of the late medieval period, a consensus relating to the nature of justification was maintained throughout. It continued to be held or it continued to be understood as the process by which a man is made righteous. The essential feature of the Reformation doctrine of justification is that a deliberate and systematic distinction is made between justification as legal imputation and regeneration or the doctrine of sanctification where we're changed, okay? He says where, I'm quoting again, where none had been acknowledged before in the history of Christian doctrine. A fundamental discontinuity was introduced into the Western theological tradition where none had ever existed or ever been contemplated before. The Reformation understanding of the nature of justification, this exact definition we've been talking about, justification as the legal crediting of righteousness to the account of the sinner, he says the Reformation understanding of the nature of justification must therefore be regarded as a genuine, genuine theological novum. And this is where we were really getting off on on the, the topics last week, because this idea of taking justification and regeneration and instead of making them part of this one thing, making them two separate things mm-hmm. is so indicative of what happened with so many other doctrines in the Reformation, taking faith and works, which are always meant to be kind of seen yeah. as a partnership in the Christian life and saying it's either or, or uh, free will and predestination. It's always kind of been this sort of mystery of mm-hmm. both and taking it apart and say, no, it's either or. Um, all these things that were con- seen and considered in sort of like a harmonious, mysterious paradox in the life of yeah, I'm thinking of Historic scripture Christian and tradition. Thought. Scripture, scripture and, and tradition is a great example too. Scripture or tradition. Yeah. It, yeah. It's taking all these things that were sort of these beautiful paradoxical mysteries and saying, no, you have to have one or the other. You can't have both. Um, yeah, the doctrine has to be rationally resolved to the left or, or to the right. Okay, and so I had felt these tensions that we talked about for many, many, many years. And then I read McGrath and he tells me that this conception I had of justification was brand new. Okay, and this created a an avalanche of questions kind of started pouring down on my head. And they were these. What if the tension that I've been dealing with for all these years, what if it was not the fault of all of those what I considered problematic passages about obedience and the need to persevere and the need to confess sins as a Christian? What if the reason that I was having such a hard time putting all the puzzle pieces together of New Testament theology is that the concept of justification I was working with 
which McGrath says was brand new with Luther and Calvin and the Reformers, what if the conception was wrong? After all, if the Reformation view is the biblical view, okay, if the Reformation view is what the Bible actually teaches, how is it that no one in the first 1,500 years of Christian thought ever saw it? Or as I mean, McGrath said, even contemplated it. Yeah, I mean, he went further. strong words. That's right. He yeah. not only says no one ever saw it, he says no one ever even contemplated it in 1,500 years of Christian thought. And, and so I was sitting here thinking, surely if justification as the legal imputation of Christ's righteousness is something clearly taught in the pages of Holy Writ, someone, somewhere, you know, at some point along the way, a millennium and a half, someone would have seen it. And what this led me to is where we stand now in our series, and that is what this led me to, to want to do is to re-examine the biblical case then, to look at it again for the Reformation Doctrine of Justification. You know, you know, kind of, I guess the question I was asking was, how strong could this biblical case be if no one has seen it? No one. And I wanted to begin where virtually every treatment of the subject begins, and that is with our father, Abraham, who had many sons. I am one of them. I, I think you are too. So uh, which arm do we start with first? I thought it was, let's it just the praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, yeah. okay. turn around, sit down. Okay. Yeah. I want to begin with Abraham. All right. Because Abraham is the father of faith, and Abraham is the central figure in the New Testament that has that is brought out by the Apostle Paul to teach his doctrine of justification. And so I, I'll read quickly from Romans chapter 4, where Paul writes, What shall we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the key line. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as what is due. But to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Okay, now the event in Abraham's life that the Apostle Paul is referring to here is an event that occurred in Genesis chapter 15, where, where we need to go mentally. As the chapter begins, you will remember Abraham, uh, still Abram at the time, by the way, I'll just call him Abraham for simplicity. Abraham, Abraham is struggling with the fact that while God has promised him a son, years have passed and it hasn't happened. God takes Abram outside and God says to him, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then the very important verse six, and he, that is Abram, believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay, now here's what's important. This verse, Genesis 15, six, and Paul's references to it later, this is universally understood within classic Protestantism to be describing the moment at which Abraham was justified by faith alone. That is, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord legally credited the righteousness of Christ to him retroactively, since Jesus wasn't going to come for another couple thousand years, okay? In fact, here's how one Reformed theologian describes it, Matt. Genesis 15, 6 states, And he believed in the Lord, 
and he counted to him for righteousness. And then continuing to quote from this Protestant theologian, God grants righteousness to Abraham as a free gift. It is clear that when Abraham was justified by faith, the righteousness which was reckoned or charged to his account was a righteousness not his own, but that of another, namely the righteousness of Christ. Okay, Matt. Now, as I examined this key passage, and this is where we begin today, and I began to read for the first time in my life what Catholic apologists had to say about this passage, I came to believe that this is not, and in fact, this cannot be the correct interpretation. That is the interpretation given by this Protestant scholar that I just read. Can't be. Okay, and I'm going to walk through four issues uh, or four points, uh, parts of an argument in favor of what I'm saying. But first is a little bit more contextual. Um, back to this issue of tension that I mentioned a few moments ago. I want you to notice first that if the Protestant reading of Genesis 15:6 is correct, the same tension that I described earlier is created in spades throughout the, the narrative of Abraham's life. Okay, if their interpretation is correct. Because imagine that in Genesis 15, 6, imagine that this passage is recording the moment when God legally credited or imputed the righteousness of Christ to Abraham's account, and he was justified by faith alone. Basically, okay, when Abraham got deal. saved. This is when yeah. Abraham got saved. Yeah. When it was he a said done that deal. prayer, right? And he trusted Jesus, and it's all yeah. good from there. Yeah. Okay. So imagine that that's the correct interpretation. Then how do we understand um, Genesis 17, two chapters later, where God commands Abraham to receive the sign of circumcision and warns him that if he doesn't obey, he will be cut off from the covenant. I am God Almighty. I'm reading from it now. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Um, how were we to understand Genesis 22, another five chapters later, where Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, Moriah? And when Abraham follows through, the Lord says to him, quoting again, because you have done this and have not withhold your son, your only son, I will indeed bless your descendants because you have obeyed my voice. And how are we to understand Genesis 26, where the Lord repeats the promises of the covenant to Isaac and says to him, quoting again, I will fulfill the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Notice the text doesn't say, I will fulfill the oath that I swore to Abraham because he believed me and the, my righteousness was credited to his account at that time. It says because he obeyed. So once again, we have this radical, if the Protestant interpretation of Genesis 15, 6 is, is the correct interpretation, then we have this radical tension where God is saying to him, you have got it. You believed and it was credited to you. And then start saying, oh, by the way, if you don't do this, you lose it. And if you don't do that, you lose it. And oh, because you did this, you've got it. And, and, and even to Isaac, his son, you know, I will confirm the oath that I swore to Abraham because Abraham obeyed my commandments. So you see, the tension is there, and that's the first point that I want to make. Well, it's so funny to me to hear a Reformed person talk about how this all functioned in their brain, because again, these were not issues that I had as a Wesleyan Arminian Christian. You know, when I hear that 
God says that you have to believe him in order to get blessing and you have to obey him in order to get blessing. I don't feel like he's talking about two different things. Like right, there's, right. it's all supposed to be meant to be part of this package deal where you believe God, you trust his commandments, you continue to believe, but that doesn't let you off the hook for obedience. So when I hear, as it says in Genesis 26, it says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments and my statutes mm-hmm. and my laws, I don't see that as a phrase that's contradictory to because Abraham believed. I just think that's all part of the same package. That's kind of the, well, that's, that shows you how. see the tension the tension doesn't exist between faith and obedience once you believe that salvation is a a, a path that has to be walked right. and persevered until the end. As it was taught to me in, in, in yeah, my particular then there's no issue. form of But if you view salvation yeah. as something that actually takes place at the beginning and is, in its most important sense, completed at the beginning, then all these ideas have to be explained. Then you have to have a really complicated way yeah. to, to talk about Genesis 26 beyond what the text itself actually says, which is Abraham obeyed and he was kept blessed laws because of that. My... Okay. Second point though, and here's where I really begin to present my argument against the Protestant interpretation. The last point was more of just kind of reminding myself and you and everyone of how this tension that I've described in the New Testament can be seen in Abraham's life as well. Okay. Here's my, here's my second point. When you read Genesis 15, 6, you can see, just reading the words, the passage isn't even saying that righteousness was somehow credited or transferred or imputed to Abraham. It's not even saying that. What the passage actually says is, and I quote it again, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is, Abraham believed God and it, that is his faith. Abraham's faith was reckoned as righteousness. It's not even saying Abraham believed God and God reckoned righteousness. It's saying Abraham believed God and that, his faith, was reckoned as righteousness. Now, the word translated reckoned here, it doesn't imply, certainly doesn't necessarily imply, anything being legally credited or anything like that. The word means to reckon, to count, to consider. And you know, when I say I reckon Matt Swain to be a good guy. Or I, you know, I count Matt Swain to be a good guy. Or you know what? I impute goodness to uh, Matt Swain. I've never said it exactly like that. It'd be kind of It's a shame you haven't, really. Okay, but the word means to consider, too. If I say, I reckon Matt to be a good guy, I consider, all I mean is, I consider him to be a good guy. I don't mean, um, I don't mean that I have taken goodness and legally credit it to, to, to an account that Matt has somewhere. You know what I mean? If only you, know? you would, Ken. You know, I reckon I'd be better off. Yeah. It, it, okay. God looks at Abraham's faith and he reckons. He counts. He considers it as righteousness. Okay. The, the most na- what I'm saying is the most natural reading of the actual words of Genesis 15, 6 is to say that Abraham believed God's promise and God counted him. God reckoned him, God considered him to be a righteous man, okay? In other words, in the end, I believe that Genesis 15, 6 is basically saying the same thing that Nehemiah 9, verses 7 and 8 say about Abraham, in other words. And listen to this, because it's I think it's very instructive. Nehemiah 9, verses 7 and 8, we read, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you. 
and you made a covenant to give his descendants the land. Okay? God found his heart to be faithful. In Genesis 6, just to give you a parallel, in Genesis 6, we read this. We read, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And, and why? Well, we're told. Because Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, or because Noah walked with God. So Noah was a righteous man. Uh, he was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and therefore God fa- Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It does this doesn't mean, mean that does this mean that Noah believed and was justified, or does it mean that Noah obeyed God, or does it just mean all of the above? It it means all of the above. But the thing that I have in my mind that I want to communicate is when you read this, it doesn't mean that Noah was perfectly righteous. I mean, no one reads this and thinks, oh. This this passage, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. This doesn't mean he was a sinless human being walking about the earth, you know, traipsing about. Um, and it doesn't mean that he had righteousness, perfect righteousness, legally credited to his account. It's just a way of saying Noah was a man of God. Noah was faithful to the Lord. And in fact, we could go on, but it would take us off track. There are many, many, many times in the Old Testament when God's people are referred to as righteous. You know, if someone is just a faithful son of the covenant, he can be described that way. So it doesn't mean Noah was perfect. It doesn't mean he had righteousness credited to his count. And the same thing with Abraham here. When God sees his faith and reckons righteousness to him, it doesn't mean that he's perfect, and it doesn't mean that perfection was credited to him. It just means Abraham found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? So, now here's the third point. And this is kind of, this is maybe the most interesting, maybe not. Fourth it's certainly the grossest. Too. It's certainly the grossest, yeah. Okay, here's my third point. There's another passage in the Old Testament that I think argues very strongly that the interpretation of Genesis 15, 6 that I've given here is on the right track, okay? In Numbers chapter 25, not exactly a passage you read to your kids at bedtime, okay? Oh, but you should, Ken. Uh, anything for the book of Numbers, is it's it's uh, tell it around the campfire. That's all I'm saying. Okay, we read about an interesting event. Not many will recognize immediately that it's from Numbers 25, but you'll probably remember the story. The Israelites are crossing through the land of the Moabites on their way to the land of Canaan, the land, land of promise. Some of the men, the Israelite men, begin to sin with the women of the area, commit fornication. God sends a plague among them. And while Moses is on his face before the tent of meeting, weeping and crying out to God, an Israelite man has the audacity to take a Midianite woman in the presence of everyone into his tent. Okay? At this point, we read, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the inner room and pierced them both through. The man of Israel and the woman through her body. Thus the plague was stayed from the people of Israel. All right. It might sound like a better shot than it was. They were both very close together when he threw the spear. Yes. Yes. And I'm sure you're asking, what in the world? (laughs) Right. No. No. What in the world does this have to do with justification by faith alone? That's the question. What in the world? Phineas spearing a man and a woman, pinning them to the ground, 
What does that have to do with justification? Well, this is what it has to do, okay? In Psalm 106, in the 106th Psalm, verses 28 through 31, this same event is recalled. And I want you to listen very carefully to what is said about this gentleman, Phineas. This is from Psalm 106. The Israelites attached themselves to the Baal of Peor, that is one of the false gods of the Moabites, ate sacrifice, ate sacrifices offered to the dead, committed fornication. They provoked the Lord to anger with their doings, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed. Very nice way of saying it. And the plague was stayed. And here it is. And that has been reckoned to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Okay? That has been reckoned to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Here's the thing I want to communicate. Apart from Genesis 15, 6, Matt, and apart from Paul's references to this passage in the, in the New Testament, this happens to be the only place in the entire Bible where we find those words, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believes God, and it is reckoned to him as righteousness. Here in Psalm 106, Phineas runs his spear through a man and a woman, and it is reckoned to him as righteousness. And, and here's the question I have for those who insist that Genesis 15 is teaching justification by the imputation of, righteous, of Christ righteous by faith alone. Here's the question. What is Psalm 106 teaching? Justification by execution alone? Truly, I mean, it, it's funny to say it, but truly, I wonder if there's a single Protestant theologian on earth who believes that when Phineas ran into that tent with his spear and nailed the man and the woman to the ground and killed them both, executed them both, I wonder if there's any theologian on earth, in fact, who believes that when this occurred, God legally credited to Phineas the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All I see is Phineas in his righteous anger, basically said, this is no longer acceptable in the land of Israel. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the same thing as you're saying with Noah and with Abraham. Um, you know, what, what if this is just a way of saying, as it appears to be in so many other cases in the Old Testament, that this is a person who loved God and was mm -hmm. willing to obey God and live righteously in the sight of God, uh, rather than having some sort of like an imputed transaction that took place in that moment. Yeah, some transfer of righteousness from his from God's account to his or something like that. You know, in fact, I think that the words in there, I'm not going to go on and on about this, but the words from generation to generation kind of prove that the interpretation you're giving is the true one. Because what Psalm 106 is clearly saying is that because of what Phineas did in his zeal for God, he is remembered. You know, he's reckoned. He's considered, he's remembered, if you will, from generation to generation as having been a righteous man. In, in other words, that phrase from generation to generation doesn't make any sense if you interpret it to mean some kind of a legal crediting, you know? He was legally yeah. credited from generation to generation. No, I mean, it's clearly saying because of what he did, he's remembered, he's considered, he's reckoned, he's counted. He's considered to have been a righteous man from generation to generation, everyone in the, among the people of Israel always knows now, forever, to think of this man as having been a righteous man. That's what it's saying. And I think that's what Genesis 15, 6 is saying as well. 
Abraham believed God, and it, his faith, was reckoned, considered, as righteousness. In other words, it's not saying anything about righteousness being transferred to him. Now, there's one more reason I have for believing what I'm saying here, okay? That Genesis 15, 6 cannot be describing some moment in which Abraham believes and God reckons or credits righteousness to his account. And it's this. And this is one. I don't see any way of getting around this at all. At the time the events recorded in Genesis 15 occurred, that is the time in Abraham's life, Abraham had already been walking in the steps of faith for a quarter of a century. He had been a believer for decades. Now, remember, according to the Reformation concept, we are justified the moment we first believe. The moment we first look to Christ in faith and reach out our hand, we are justified. So why wasn't Abraham justified back in Genesis 12 is the question that comes to me. When God first called him and said to him, go forth from your land and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And we read that Abraham left everything behind and obeyed God and went. Or why wasn't Abraham justified during the 25-year span in which he is sojourning about the land of Canaan, building altars to the Lord, offering sacrifices to the Lord. Nearly praying. his own son. Why isn't that the mark of his justification? Yeah. Meeting with meeting with the Lord and talking face to face about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you know, like, why wasn't he justified then? Are we saying that all this occurred before Abraham truly believed? You know, back to the college analogy, you know, you know, um, yeah, you went to school and you went uh, and you did uh, your lessons and you took the tests and all that kind of thing. Um, but you weren't justified because you didn't truly believe at that point or something. Why does God put Abraham to the test by having his son walk up that mountain if Abraham had already sealed the deal back when he looked up at the stars? Unless yeah, well, it's an, unless it's a process. Yeah. Unless yeah, it's a process. Which is bringing up the issue of, of, of the tensions again. Why, why is there this test? Which apparently he could fail because the angel of the Lord comes to him when he doesn't fail and says, because you have done this and offered your, been willing to sacrifice your son. Therefore, I will bless you. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the condition of circumcision, all of that, okay? So, but the point is, Abraham, at the time this occurs in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham has been walking in the steps of faith for 25 years. So how can this passage in Genesis 15 be referring to the moment in which he first believed and was credited with righteousness in the in the Reformation sense. Okay, in conclusion, let me kind of wrap this up. What I would submit is that in the light of these four considerations, the tensions created in Abraham's life, the actual wording of the passage that we've looked at, the parallel with Psalm 106 and our good friend Phineas, and now the timing of the event in Genesis 15:6. I don't think this passage can be teaching what Protestantism takes it to be teaching. All of that is simply read into the passage, is what I would submit. The whole idea of legal transfer of righteousness is something that is literally being read into the passage. It's not there. And again, let's just look at how life works in general with common sense. Ken, you and I are going to stop this episode and go on to our daily lives, and we have to be fathers and husbands and such. And we can't just say, well, you know, my 
relationship with my wife was, you know, reckoned to me as marriage in that moment when we stood before the altar. Therefore, all my sins are forgiven past, present, and future in that moment, and I can do anything I want to because everybody knows that, you know, my heart was given to her back then. You know, no, I got to live it today, man. I got to live that today. Same thing with being a dad. Same thing with being a friend. Same thing with being a coworker. Same thing with everything else in every aspect of our lives. Um, and, and as I was saying before and saying to you before this program, maybe God makes it work that way in every single area of our life as a way mm-hmm. of showing us how he operates with you and I in matters of salvation. Um, because and God is why, one. Yeah. And that's why Paul can so easily slip into the analogy of sowing the field. You know, he who sows to the flesh. Yeah, and he's writing this to Christians in Galatia. You sow to the flesh, then you'll reap corruption. It's only if you sow to the spirit. By persevering and doing good, he says that you will you will uh, harvest, you will reap the harvest of eternal life. Why would Jesus okay. Himself use so many agricultural analogies if He wasn't trying to tell us? Look at the way that the grass of the field grows and the fruits grow on the vine. That's kind of how it is with you and me. Look at the way I've yeah. The, look at the way I've created the whole world. Yeah, we looked at this passage this week, and I I was planning on bringing in other things. But this passage is the central passage in the Old Testament that is looked at, and I wanted to just examine it and say, is it possible that this passage is actually teaching what the Reformation view says? And I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. What we're going to do in our next episode, just quickly, Matt, is we're going to look at other passages from the Old Testament next week that actually tell us, in positive terms, what God is going to do to solve the problem of human sin. There are passages in the Old Testament where where God actually, through the prophets, actually says to solve the problem of human sin, this is what I'm going to do. And we're going to see that none of them, none of them speak of the legal crediting of righteousness or anything close to it. Or faith alone, for that matter. So, Ken, always a great conversation. Thank you for, uh, you know, not skewering me with anything, you know, in the course of all of it. So we appreciate uh, you being along. And we appreciate... Everybody who's been listening to all these episodes and watching them and sharing them with other people, you've made so many kind comments to us in recent weeks, and we that's very good for us. It makes us want to keep doing these things. So Thank you. if you like what you see and uh, hear, then by all means, subscribe. Click the subscribe button and uh, send it to your friends and tell them to tune in as well. Ken, have a great week. We'll talk to you again next time. Okay. Bye-bye.